When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al-Samad. So we're up to episode 25, and it's been a little bit uh, of an interesting week and a half or so since the last time. Uh, Sam, I went to a conference in in, uh, Cambridge at, at MIT. Once a year, they, they let us in, um, and we, we kind of dirty the place up. Uh, <laughs> but it, it was good. It was uh, the New England Motor Press Technology Conference. We talked about stronger, lighter, faster, uh, all the new technologies and stuff. I will have some stuff for probably the next week or two or, or however we want to sort of load them out. But uh, really interesting stuff right up everybody's uh alley in terms of um you know the raw materials and all of the hard work that goes into to vehicles uh to to make them as modern and uh smart and lightweight and powerful as they are now but enough about me what have you been up to um well let's see um i bought a car um, you bought a really cool car <laughs> I, I did um and uh you know i mean we over the years we have um often gotten questions about you know what's a what's a cool you know a, a relatively cheap uh fun car that i can buy and you know more often than not you know one of the the options that we come up with is uh the mazda miata um and i finally put my money where my mouth is and i bought myself a miata not a brand new one you did the best no, thing no. possible you bought a miata you a 1990 a, yeah, miata like that's an early miata that's yeah it's like the 89 was the first year so 90 was you know the second model year for the miata and um you know, it's, it's funny back when I graduated, um, from, uh, GMI in 1990 and I decided I wanted to get a new car. Uh, my short list came down to the, um, Mitsubishi Eclipse turbo, the all wheel drive, the, um, Mustang five liter LX or Miata. And I ended up uh, buying the Mustang and I drove that car for almost eight years. Uh, and had a lot of fun with it, but I've always wanted to have a Miata and recently um, one that's in very good condition became available. Um, A friend of mine uh, who is currently employed uh, uh, at General Motors um, has one that he bought a few years ago uh, from, I believe, from the original owner. So I think I'm the only the third owner of this particular car. And it's a remarkably low mileage Miata, you know, for a 27 year old car. It's only got 56,000 miles on it and it's never been driven in winter, uh, never seen any salt. And so you know, unlike a lot of old Miatas, it doesn't have any rust in the rocker panels. Uh, it's really solid, uh, you know, runs really well. And it's just a hoot to drive. I'm just lamenting the fact that 
1990 was 27 years ago. Yeah, uh, don't remind me of that. Yeah, and beyond that, though, uh, you know, the the we should talk about the Eclipse Turbo another time. But yeah. man, that in '90, like all-wheel drive turbo in that coupe, that car was badass. Uh, it, it was. I mean, for that era, you know, I mean that that car had you know almost as much power as the Mustang I ended I up buying. I think it had like what two hundred and ten horsepower with the turbo. Yeah, yeah, and the and the Mustang I got was two twenty five. Right. Uh, and you know, the it didn't have as much torque as the the V eight and the Mustang, but it certainly had uh, certainly had plenty of get up and go. Well, it was a quick car. It also had all wheel drive, so it could yeah. launch where the Mustang would just light up its tires because the Fox body. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, with, uh, you know, with, um, you know, it, those, those first generation Eclipse, the Eclipse, the Eagle Talon and the, uh, uh, what was the, the laser, the, the laser, the Plymouth laser. I mean, those, that was a great looking car. It was, uh, they screwed it up when they got to the second totally. generation and then the third yeah. generation, uh, the, the, when they get to the recycle, it, ju- the it just got progressively worse yeah. over the years. And they completely and, lost know, the plot, but man, that, they, that first they finally Diamond euthanized Star, it, but woo. That was yeah. that was a hell of a car. It was okay. The nineties. Um, yes. <laughs> so, um, were you even? At, you weren't even out of high school then, were you? We won't talk about that. Uh, I, well, I guess if we're gonna, if it's time for confessions, I entered high school in ninety one. Oh, oh. <laughs> shit! It's okay. All right. I was the same eighty five year old man then <laughs> as I am now. You were- you were born as a crotchety old I man, huh? Absolutely was. I did have a poster though in in the nineties. I forget what year they came out with it, but the uh, the British Racing Green Edition um, NA Miata. I actually, oh yeah, because what I, I used remember to that. do, I, it was a limited edition. Yeah, I used to look at the at the bottom of all the car ads um, in in like Car and Driver and, and stuff. You could you could call the number and you could get them to send you the brochures. So. I would call the number and I would get the brochures and there was like the Mazda poster. And so I called the number and I got the poster. It was, I had like a brochure collection. It was cool. Excellent. Um, yeah. So it was neat. Well, you know, as, as someone who, you know, in my daily professional life spends so much time thinking about writing about and talking about, um, autonomous and connected vehicles, it's nice to, drive a car that is so utterly manual right completely non-autonomous and not (laughs) connected. you know manual transmission manual top um you know manual you know the only thing you know about the only thing in there that's powered is the windows it does have power windows does it have power steering um yes this one has or yes this one has power steering uh but that was an option on the up level trim on those uh, early miatas on the f- those first generation miatas uh the base cars did not have power steering right i love those uh, the na's are i mean that is such a well executed car and it, you know they've stayed remarkably true to the form over the last 27 years over four generations of that car um yeah the you know, in the most recent generation, the design changed probably the most it, it's ever changed. But um, the, you know, at its essence, you know, it's really very much the same car it was back in those days. But you know what? Um, I've got uh, a new Miata coming uh, in early July uh, that I'll be testing. 
And so why don't we come back to the discussion of the Miata uh, in a few weeks, you know, once I've had a chance to do a back-to-back comparison between those, between the old and the new. Um, and uh, let's move on to some new stuff. Why that sounds like a fantastic idea. We'll tear ourselves away. Uh, first thing we can do, I guess, is talk about the new stuff we've been driving. Uh, yeah. So what have you been driving? Uh, been driving the, uh, when I haven't been puttering around in my Miata, the, uh, brand new Chevy Equinox, uh, which is, uh, uh, Chevrolet's compact crossover. Um, you know, so their competitor against the Honda CRV and Toyota RAV4 and Ford Escape and, and, uh, all the others in that segment. Um, you know, it's just got a complete redesign, uh, for its third generation, and, um, you know, it's it's certainly much improved over the last one. Uh, you know, it's <clears throat> it's got um, two engine options right now. It'll have a third later this summer uh, when they add the diesel engine. Uh, but the stand, the base engine in there now is GM's one point five liter turbo, which is um, one of the it's the largest and most powerful variant of the, the new engine family that GM designed with their Chinese partners at SAIC uh, over the last several years. Uh, so they did this whole family of small engines um, going from a one liter three cylinder up through 1.5 liter four cylinders. And uh, the, the 1.4 liter uh, turbo that is in the cruise now is part of that family. Um, the one five that you find in the, uh, the Malibu um or, let's see no the the Malibu's got the 1.8 um the uh but the the 1.5 turbo is is in the Equinox and there's several other variants that are available in different different markets around the world but it's a really good engine um you know really surprisingly refined uh, you know as with as with most typical modern engines it's direct injected turbocharged uh about 173 horsepower i think um or 170 horsepower, 203 foot pounds of torque. And, um, you know, it's, it's plenty, you know, they, as with all the rest of GM's current generation of vehicles, uh, as they've been redesigned, GM's managed to carve, you know, anywhere from 250 to 300 pounds of weight out of each one, you know, even without resorting to a lot of exotic materials, you know, just doing some really good basic fundamental engineering, um, they've, they've managed to make them significantly lighter. Um, so, you know, they have better performance, uh, better fuel economy, uh, uh, just overall, you know, better vehicles. You know, this thing is, is one of the roomiest vehicles in the segment. And, um, like the, the previous, um, generation Equinoxes, uh, it's got the, the sliding back seat. So it's a, you know, it's a five seater, two rows only, um, but the, the second row seat uh, can slide back and forth uh, by about three or four inches, I think, so that, you know, if you need extra cargo space, you can slide it up, you know, sacrifice a little bit of leg room in the in the back row. Um, or, you know, if you slide it all the way back, uh, you know, it's absolutely cavernous in that second row compared to uh, most of its competitors. So one of the things that impressed me about this, and this was a vehicle that they talked about at the, the conference that I was at, um, was it took them four years to do this. And I was impressed by that because it's a pretty significant um, redesign. I, I realize it's kind of like a an intensive mid-cycle refresh, really. But uh, no, actually, this is an all new. Is it all new? Design. It's not. It's not. Yeah. So that's that's really fast 
Four four uh, years no, from such that, a four, four years is four years is about fairly typical really? for I, most most new vehicle programs these days. I thought it was days. like five years at least, but I mean, maybe I'm just jaded. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it depends. You know, on if there's a lot of you know a lot of new technology, you know, it might be closer to five. Uh, but in most cases, it's usually about four years um, on on most modern vehicles, and sometimes even a little bit less now. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, when the first generation Volt came to market, it was, you know, four years from concept to production, uh, actually slightly less than that. Um, you know, so it, yeah, that's that's about right for for most vehicles. That's pretty impressive. I mean, the amount of mm-hmm. change that that they accomplished with with the Equinox uh, in that time, you know, just like. Yeah, this. I mean, you know, you're certainly not going to sh- shave 300 pounds out of a vehicle with a mid-cycle refresh. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I was saying okay, I thought it was maybe uh, a pretty intensive program that kept, you know, what was good and you know, significantly re-engineered everything else. Um, you know, the, the the basic platform is, you know, the, you know, like the suspension uh, architecture and things like that is not dramatically changed. You know, it's a significant update. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I mean, it didn't really need to either. I mean, it was it was a pretty solid setup. Um, you know, with uh, you know, basic um, four link uh, strut suspension or strut suspension in the front and a four link independent rear. Um, you know, electric power steering. You know, so I mean, this is this is essentially a next generation of the Theta platform that GM has used uh, since I guess uh, first one was probably Theta was like uh, 2000. two thousand eight, two thousand seven, mm. when the Saturn View, the second generation Saturn View, was the first vehicle to come out with that platform. Okay. And what was then, before you know, that? They, what was what was because um, the first generation View. I I don't know. Never mind. That was a, that was a different platform. Yeah. We don't we don't need um, to get into history. That's what Wikipedia yeah. is for. <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's you know the the theta the theta platform you know started with the view and you know you've had the Equinox and the Terrain and um and the um uh second generation Cadillac SRX was kind of a combination of theta and epsilon parts um so yeah i mean this is you know a similar similar basic architecture but it's it's significantly updated uh you know there, there's no no real carryover parts in it um you know certainly the design is is all new you know and it's consistent with what we're seeing on other current chevrolet models uh like the the malibu and the cruise um you know especially in the you know, on the sides, you know, the, the character lines in the sides, uh, you know, it's very got a lot of similarity, uh, family similarity to the to the Malibu, um, you know, and it's it's a really attractive vehicle um, and it's it's been really pleasant to drive. And, you know, it gets it's pretty fuel efficient. It's been getting about 27 miles per gallon. Um, so, you know, really can't complain too much about well, it. Well, and so they've taken a bunch, you know, several hundred pounds out of it, but that's still a small engine regardless of its power numbers too like does it ever feel do you ever catch it sort of when it's off boost or anything feeling flat-footed or is it overall you know uh, just a, a no not of, really i mean yeah. it it's yeah i mean it, it you know as as with most uh uh turbocharged uh direct injected engines you know it's got plenty of low-end torque uh you know it's the front wheel drive version um of the equinox is just over 3300 pounds um the all-wheel drive which is what i'm driving is I think just over 34. Uh, so that's you know, not that heavy for, yeah, no, yeah. it's not at all. 
it's you know it's it's actually surprisingly lightweight for its size you know and when you compare it to you know some of its competitors like the uh like the escape in particular you know that's that's probably several hundred pounds less than an escape yeah um i'm just i'm using so my non my unit of non-standard measurement for weight weight versus horsepower is volvos uh, <laughs> just because uh so 3400 pounds is roughly what my 740 turbos weighed maybe it's maybe 100 or 200 pounds heavier uh and they had about 160 horsepower with 180 or so foot pounds of torque uh so uh if it's about 3400 pounds and it's got 200 pound feet of torque and 170 or so horsepower that's that's gonna be sort of lively actually yeah it's yeah no it's, it's, it's quite good suck. i mean I, I don't yeah i don't think anybody's gonna complain about the performance you know and you know people in this segment you know buying these types of vehicles you know they're not necessarily looking for performance you know they want to make sure that you know it's not going to feel slow you know you don't want to be caught flat-footed while you're trying right. to merge onto a freeway you know and with the uh, the optional two liter um turbo uh, it does have a 3500 pound towing capacity uh, which you know is plenty for i mean it's as good as anything in this segment yeah and actually probably better than most yeah i mean they really like in terms of performance people only miss it when it's not there uh you know they, they know yeah. when it's not there but if it's adequate it's fine um they're gonna also offer a turbo diesel in that too right or is that yeah some, the, like the same the same 1.6 liter diesel that's available in the cruise already it uh, will be available in the equinox and in the uh the GMC terrain, uh, when it launches this summer, um, the, you know, so it's, that's a really nice engine, much more refined than GM's, uh, previous two liter turbo that was in the cruise. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the cruise diesel. Um, I was really impressed with it and, you know, I think it'll, it'll do well. It's, I think that'll be, it'll be an interesting combination, especially in the crossovers. Um, and you know, Mazda is coming out with the, uh, the new CX-5 with a diesel uh, this summer as well. So it's going to be very interesting to compare those against each other and see how, uh, see how they do because GM's using a 1.6 liter diesel um, and Mazda is, has, their engine is a 2.2 liter, uh, which is quite a bit bigger. Not a whole lot more power than the GM engine, uh, but um, it, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how each of those, do, each of those does in the marketplace. Yeah, and I'm sort of, it's curious, especially now because diesel continues to sort of be under this cyclical cloud of, you know, they they catch, uh, you know, automaker or a supplier, you know, pulling some shenanigans. And actually right now, uh, it's funny, just a couple of weeks after we had the, the, uh, the engineer from GM talking about the Duramax, now there's some scrutiny that GM and Bosch are... Uh, playing fast and loose with the emissions controls on the Duramax. So, uh, you know, and you know, same thing at, at uh, Fiat Chrysler as well. Uh, EPA has already sued uh, Fiat Chrysler, you know, claiming they cheated on the emissions uh, tests with their diesel. So uh, it's not looking good right now. Yeah. So we'll, we'll actually see if these make it to market. And it's kind of too bad because the engines themselves are really, uh, it's like you say, they're, they're very nice to drive and they're, they're very refined and they're powerful and they, uh, they, they do get exceptional fuel economy. Um, if they're, if we're just finding out like, Hey, you know what, these things, the past tests, but they're, they're really not as clean in the real world as we thought they were. And it's either, you know, everybody's mistaken, which I find kind of hard to believe that we don't know this stuff. Um, 
or there's there's active cover-ups, which I I like to think that people are better than that, but who knows? Um, I well, we are talking about you know big companies, you know corporations, and uh, you know <laughs> they're you know they're not beyond um, covering things up. Sure, and yeah, say. I mean there's there's I mean potentially billions of dollars on the line. To, it just uh, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, uh, consumers miss out. Um, uh, and, and on several levels. So, uh, now that I've been a complete downer, <laughs> uh, what, what trim level Equinox did you have? Uh, it's the premier. Oh, so that's like the, so, the tippity top, right? That's yeah. yeah. And that's got everything. How is how are the, um, the ergonomics and the, it's just have, I'm assuming it's got the latest the, my link and all that stuff. Yeah, it's got the latest MyLink uh, support for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, uh, and that works fine, you know, just as it does in, in other vehicles. Um, you know, the one thing it's missing, um, you know, that uh, so far Honda is the only company doing this with Android Auto is when you're using Google Maps, um, Honda uh, actually mirrors the uh, the navigation prompts in the instrument cluster. Mm. Uh, just as just as most company just as most manufacturers do now with their built-in uh navigation systems so you know when you're driving along you don't have to look over at the screen you know you'll see oh turn left here you know that shows up right in the cluster or in your heads-up display if you have one um honda is the only one that does that with android auto right now um and i'd like to see other manufacturers follow suit that seems like something they should be able to do with a software update because it's like if honda's doing it it's not some secret sauce it's probably part of the api or something that everybody can kind of get to and they just have to tweak their software you you would think so but um you know it's possible that it may have something to do with the fact that um honda's head units are actually running android as well Mm. so they may they may have access to some stuff in there that is not readily available through uh regular android auto but uh we'll have, we'll have to look into that the the only real complaint i would have about the uh the interior is like a lot of vehicles the um the front seat cushions are probably are a little bit shorter than i would like um you know if you've got uh longer legs or longer thighs uh it's nice to have a little bit longer seat cushion for some extra support there uh, and my wife was complaining about that as well the other day. But other than that, um, you know, not not much to, to complain about. Good visibility out of it. Um, you know, everything seems, seems well screwed together. Uh, good fit and finish. So, yeah, I, I, it's a it, it's it's a vehicle. You know, if you're looking for you know a smaller crossover, um, you know, compact crossover, this is definitely one that you should be taking a look at. You know, very handsome looking vehicle, especially in the the bright bronze orange color that i've got Oh, you have it in that color yeah that's yeah. wow that stands yeah, out it does um you know and it, it drives really well so yeah it, it's it's worth taking a look at it's hard to dislike uh you know sort of top trim level crossover these days they're pretty nice places to be um because they have to be because that's what people buy um yeah it's, i mean it's it's what the market wants and you know the manufacturers are you know, going, you know, <laughs> you know, any any smart company in the business is going to, you know, try to supply what the market seems to want. Yes. And that's a really great segue for us to talk about something the market does not want. Uh, <laughs> what could that possibly be, Mr. Roth? Uh, that is the Toyota Tundra. Um, and I, I say that flippantly because I'm really actually Are you saying sure. that there's a full full size pickup that people don't want to buy? Uh, some people want to buy it. Um, I don't 
want to suggest it to anybody. I don't think there's a truck on the market that is as uh, as outclassed as the uh, the Tundra. I mean, even the the Titan, which was old, is now new, and it's a much more competitive truck. This is not a uh, a competitive pickup truck. It's I. It's an okay truck. Like I, I say, okay. It's it's fine. Like it will do what a pickup truck needs to do. It's got a actually the powertrain is great. Um, the stuff that it, it you know it drives like a Camry, so that's also great. But it feels really dated. Um, it's, I you know it's got very stiff competition. Um, it, it the the materials inside they're not that nice. And, and pickup trucks, I know they're work vehicles, but again, competition in this segment is fierce. And uh, th- this truck feels like it's five years old. Uh, or even more like seven well, in, years in fact it's close it's closer to 10 i know i remember when the Tundra it, it came, first came out, out in 2008 right uh and i i yeah it, i drove it, one it's funny that ones. you say yeah it's, it's funny that you say that you know it drives like a camry um because i can't say i'd necessarily agree with that you know when i drove one um you know i thought it's driving dynamics were actually pretty mediocre well i mean it drives like a cross between a camry and a pickup truck i should say it, it 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 goes down the road in a, in an innocuous fashion where it can. You know, I actually thought the steering was was uh, was a little slow, but it was decently accurate and wasn't super crappy like it can be in a pickup truck. You know, where there's like that extra bunch of numbness. Like it just, you know, it feels like a Toyota, um, which is that's not damning with faint praise. Like that's it, it's a consistency across all of their vehicles that I, I do find actually. You know, that's that's tough to pull off. So kudos for that. Um, but yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't feel as solid as other trucks for sure. Um, but I mean, what did you find most objectionable about it? It's uh, well, when, when I drove one about a year and a half ago, um, the you know, aside from, you know, the materials, you know, the interior Which basically feeling kind of cheap, they are awful. Uh, in terms of driving dynamics, my big complaint was just the the tuning of the suspension. You remember when I uh, drove the Focus RS a few weeks back and complained about um, the bounciness along certain certain kinds of roads? Um, the um, the Tundra was one of those vehicles, one of those other vehicles where I've experienced that same phenomenon. You know, the vertical motions. Um, along certain stretches of Interstate 94 here in the Detroit area, the, their suspensions just get excited, you know, and they st- you start getting these very un- uh, uncomfortable vertical motions. Uh, you know, it just feels bouncy as you're driving down the road. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's just not a good feeling. And, you know, <clears throat> the, the Tundra was one of those vehicles, and I did really did not like driving it um, along a lot of a lot, a lot of the roads around this area. I will absolutely 100% agree with you on that. It did all of those things. I, I, I noticed there was a high level of head toss, you know, as we go over mm-hmm. stuff where you just your head like if you if you just kind of let yourself flop around with it, like you bang into the window and stuff. Um, yeah, it's not a it's not a real compliant ride. Uh, I figure some of that is the truckiness. I also think that because the frame isn't as rigid as it is in other pickups, they're, they're limited on uh, what they can do with the suspension tuning. And uh, you know, maybe they could put more sway bar under it or something, but that's, that's, gonna pro- get that's probably true. Yeah. You know, um, I, cause I, I think they still have, they call it the tri-tech frame, right? Like it's, so it's, it's uh, boxed in front and then um, something in the, it's like a box high strength in the front and then something in the middle and it's, it's C channel 
uh, for the rear rails. And, and they I don't know why they designed the frame that way, but they were touting it at, at the launch of the Tundra back in the day as as an actual asset. And Ford did some tests with the F-Series, the then current F-Series and the Tundra that made of course, because Ford's like, you know, paying the money to shoot the videos. They, yeah. they made the Tundra look really like really squirrely in a lot of situations where the, the strength of the frame of the F-Series didn't didn't have any trouble uh, with the test. Yeah, I, I remember those videos. You could see that, you know, how the, the whole frame was twisting, you know, with the bed moving relative to the cab of the truck. Um, and it it did not look very good for Toyota. Yeah, like, and I don't know whether that's an actual issue or it's just a dramatic test or whatever, but it just... That kind of wind up in the frame that doesn't strike me as an effective way to make a strong, durable truck. Um, and, and, you know, I think some of the some of that like Tacoma halo uh, surrounds the Tundra as well. Um, you know, Tacomas go for stupid money. Uh, and that, that's another truck that I kind of just don't like. It feels dated. Uh, it's really not all that pleasant to drive. Uh, it's it's a thing. You know, it's it's. It's like when you buy a Wrangler, you know it's going to be subjectively terrible, but also, you know, exactly what you expect. It, it's it, And well, you know, I mean, the, the Wrangler is extremely good at certain very specific tasks. <laughs> you know, like if you're going to go, you know, crawling through a ravine and, you know, crawling over boulders, you pretty much can't beat a Wrangler. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's about the best vehicle in the world for that task. For pretty much anything else, it's awful. <laughs> it's pretty awful. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, this so the Tacoma is like it's that compact pickup that has you know it's been around forever. You know, it's, it's a known quantity, and I think they again they want that Toyota consistency. And so some of that rubs off on the the Tundra. You know, it's just like it's a larger Tacoma in some ways. Um, I do actually really like the the engine. Um, you know, they're. The Toyota's 5.7 liter V8 is pretty hard to complain about. Yeah, I was going to ask you which one you have, the 4.6 or the 5.7. Yeah. Um, I I wouldn't want to spend the money on this truck for just the 4.6. I just, I, like, you're going to get just, you know, the same fuel economy and, and you're going to be down on power. And and as it is, you know, this, this engine lags. Well, I feel like this engine lags. It's got 381 horsepower and 401 pound-feet of torque. So I guess that's competitive, but I... I don't know. I mean, the, the, the last the last big three trucks uh, on paper, yeah. on paper, it's competitive, uh, you know, but when you when you drive them, it just I don't think it feels as strong as some of the others. It does. When you put your boot into it, it's uh, it's maybe not as strong off the line. It, I mean, it's a strong yeah, engine. It's, it's probably it's probably the, the low end torque yeah. is not as not as impressive. I mean, you know, that that peak torque of 400 foot pounds, you know, comes at thirty six hundred RPM, which you know, if you look at trucks of 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that was actually really impressive. Uh, but, you know, you look at the latest stuff today and eh, maybe not so much. Yeah. Well, you I- know, especially if you look at, you know, like the Ford EcoBoost engines, uh, you know, they've got that, you know, really strong low end torque, oh, I mean, that, or, you know, even yeah. the Chevy small blocks. That's that. And that's really what I, I'm thinking is. And I don't I am no fan of the F series, even the current F series. I think that they are. If they're they're just they're, they're not as as you know well made they just feel cheap to me uh i see them everywhere and they don't they don't last uh from my completely colloquial um anecdotal observations totally non-scientific here in new england and i know that they are work vehicles so they get used and abused um 
I, I'm not a huge fan of the F-Series, but I feel like the Tundra is outclassed by even the F-Series, let alone the trucks that I actually do like, such as the, the Ram and the, uh, the, the, the Chevy Silverado and GMC Sierra. The, the Silverado and Sierra are sort of my... I, I like those the best. Uh, it, and again, it's one of those things like, take your pick, roll the dice, like all the trucks are going to be fine. <laughs> they're they're all like the numbers that they're capable of are stuff you're you're never going to really you know challenge if you're normal yeah mo- most people most people are not going to use the full capabilities of these trucks yeah. um yeah and you know the the other one that you forgot to mention of course is the new nissan titan the, yeah i'm sorry and the titan is a really good truck uh i'm impressed yeah with i mean it was it's it's you know it was such a huge improvement over the first generation um, that, you know, it's, it is really impressive. And, you know, especially, you know, the, the big thing that I complain about with the Tundra is it's driving dynamics, you know, and the, the Titan really has that nailed it. You know, it handles and rides so much better than the Tundra. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and going just, I, I forgot to make my point about the F series too. The, the EcoBoost engine just mops the floor with, with pretty much everything in the segment. That's uh, in terms of being a truck engine, even the 2.7 liter EcoBoost in in the F series is like it's just fantastically suited for the job. It has the right torque delivery. It has good economy. Uh, yes, it's not a V8, but uh, I mean, but who cares? No, I mean, I, you know, it delivers the performance. Absolutely. I'm so I'm very impressed with. And you know, you go up to the 3.5 liter EcoBoost. It's got more torque than this thing, and it has it right off the line. And it it just that engine has been so uh, thoroughly torture tested in so many ways i would have no qualms about uh going with with the turbo v6 in any of these trucks and i, I honestly think that the days of the v8 are are numbered in big trucks um unless gas continues to stay so cheap but uh well i mean with engines like the EcoBoost, you know even even with cheap gas you know it's hard to make the case for the v8 you know i think if i'm not mistaken i think right now um v and the f-150 V8s only account for about 20% of their sales volume. Oh, yeah. And that V8 is weak. I think to get a V8 that can compete numbers wise on paper with the EcoBoost, you are looking at the you've, you've got to go to the what? F250? Well, the, the, uh, no, the, the five liter, the five liter V8 um, has as much torque as the uh, um, as the EcoBoost 3.5. And it's got the same tow rating. Huh. as the uh the EcoBoost. Was, so yeah, yeah the the EcoBoost uh and the uh the V8 both have the same tow ratings um on the current F150s. But um the EcoBoost is a little bit or at least, you know, on the EPA label is a little more fuel efficient and depending on how you drive it and how you use it, it can be a little more fuel efficient than the V8. Um but yeah, the, you know, the 6.2 liter that is available in the Super Duties is, you know, that's that's the next step up. But I think even, you know, probably in the next generation Super Duties, that will probably go away as well and be replaced by, you know, perhaps a, um, a v, you know, a five liter V8 turbo. Yeah. And I, I can't I love V8s and I love the Coyote V8. I think it's a great engine, but it's just it's just really hard to, to argue. And, and, you know, I, I think Toyota will will eventually uh, when they completely redo the the tundra which, which again like they're not looking to own the segment so i'm sure they sell every tundra they they produce and they they probably mm. have a low target so fine well the you know the the plant in san antonio where they build the tundra 
was you know originally designed you know for a volume of like two hundred forty thousand, and they've never sold much more than about a hundred thousand, which is why that you know uh, Toyota ended up consolidating you know because they used to build the Tacomas at the uh, the Numi plant in California, which is now uh, Tesla's factory, and when the the current generation Tundra when it launched in two thousand eight. And it didn't do as well as Toyota was expecting. And, you know, it was using, you know, way less than half the volume of that plant. Uh, they ended up moving the Tacoma production over there. And so they built both the Tacoma and the Tundra uh, in San Antonio. And hmm. I, I'm, I'm still, uh, even with both of those, I'm still not sure if they're running at full capacity. See, and I, I, I'm surprised about that. I tried to look up um, production numbers or, or sales numbers, uh, at least for 2016 at the Tundra. And I, I just didn't find anything that was revealing i figured they were selling a couple hundred thousand of these a year but no they've they've never i think the most that they've ever sold is about 120 wow and it's a lot harder with a body on frame vehicles one of the ways that toyota can can sort of be so efficient is because of their their production method where they can build sort of everything in in any any plant right or is that that's honda i'm thinking of um uh well toyota toyota's plants are very flexible as well yeah, it's much yeah, harder they, with the body on frame vehicles. they use a lot yeah they use a lot of common uh common architecture on their front wheel drive you know so everything you know from a camry to a highlander to a lexus rx um you know use uses a lot of the same componentry uh so that does that does save them a lot of money and a lot of you know they can they can build the same things on the uh on the same assembly lines fairly easily. Right. So if one, if, so if the Camry is down, you know, the Highlander might be up and it's essentially the same stuff. You, know, you tweak, you make tweaks where you have to, but they can, they can basically follow each other down the line. Um, right. Where my, my guess is that it's, it's a bit harder to do that when you've got a pickup truck with the pickup truck architecture. If you're building the Tundra and Tacoma together, you know, maybe there's some, some efficiencies to be had. And I'm, I'm sure that Toyota with their, their focus on this has figured it out to the nth degree. Um, okay. So in 2016, they sold 115,000 uh, Tundras, 115,489 and 191,000 Tacomas. Um, so they actually did get up to a little over 300,000 out of San Antonio. But that's total. With, that's with the combined. Yeah. That's total with Tacoma and Tundra. And the, but, um, the Tacoma ton, owns you know, ton, a segment. I'm, I'm at least it had for a long time. Uh, yeah, and you know, it, Tacoma sales were actually up quite a bit last year by about seven percent. They, they redid about it, a, right? right yeah. They just did a big, big redesign. Uh, and yeah, you know, I think the you know the Tundra will probably get a revamp. You know, probably next year. I think. And at that point, I wouldn't be surprised if they. Uh, offer a, a turbo V6 in there as an option, you know, probably, probably related to the engine that's in the new Lexus LS. Yeah. And that was what I was going towards until I got derailed. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, my guess is that they're going to, they'll, they'll adjust the powertrains and the, tr the truck really does need like a thorough redo. Cause even this latest um, refresh of it, which took a long time to get here, uh, it, this this has been around for three years in in this guise now with the the 
mild restyling and and some rejiggering of options and it's just you know this is a $47,000 truck it's it's a limited trim so it's you know it's got leather and stuff it it doesn't feel that nice inside uh and I have this problem with a lot of Toyotas too like you you get the fancy trim and they just the materials just don't don't look and feel as good as I feel they should um, you know, look at, look at Ram, like whether or not the actual materials are expensive, Ram manages to make them look and feel rich. So take some tips from them and put them in the tundra. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a, there's something you probably never would have heard uh, a few years ago. No, I mean, but the, the Ram cab is really nice. Um, yeah. and the, you know, some of the, some of the higher end, I mean, all the higher end pickups are pretty nice, but even like the super high end, like the Toyota, the 1861 edition or whatever, 17, something, you know, the, the whole thing about the ranch that was there on the land where they built the plant, that's the fanciest package you can get out of Tundra. And even that kind of feels a little bit like, eh, so I, that's the, that's the equivalent of a Ford King ranch. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But they're, they're, they're kind of mailing it in on this truck or just like coasting. And, and maybe it's because they have much bigger things in store. So I, I guess we'll, we'll see in a year or two when the new Tundra arrives but um yeah don't don't spend money on this truck unless you like absolutely have to have a toyota and don't want anything else because i i i honestly can't make the case for it other than the fact that it'll probably do the job without any problem yeah (laughs) Yeah. i have no doubt it'll be very reliable totally damn it with faint praise um i'm very sorry toyota i feel bad saying this (laughs) because it's like it's not a super terrible vehicle but the the competition has moved on so it's just it's hard to justify uh you know spending that kind of dough on what is the oldest truck on the market so all right speaking of moving on i've yammered and yammered and yammered about that anybody tired of hearing me talk about the uh the tundra i think (laughs) i think you're probably tired of hearing me talk about anyway uh, so Uber seems to be in the news again, uh, getting There's in trouble. a shocker yeah, for you. I mean, <sighs> well, actually they, they didn't really do anything new to get in trouble this week. Well, I mean, I they kind of, they, they, yeah, well, I mean, this is, you know, this is a continuation of the ongoing story we've had for the last several months, um, of the, <clears throat> the lawsuit between, uh, Waymo and Uber, um, you know, and the uh, the guy at the center of this lawsuit, um, guy named Anthony Lewandowski, who's been since what about uh, March of last year, uh, a VP at Uber, um, overseeing their autonomous vehicle program. Um, he was previously an employee at Google, uh, at the Google self driving car program, and um, in the He's alleged by Waymo to have absconded with uh, about 14,000 technical documents um, in the weeks prior to his resignation from uh, from uh, Google in early 2016 uh, and uh, supposedly took those documents with him when he launched a new startup called Auto, which uh, only a few weeks after they launched that uh, was purchased by uh, Uber for $625 million. And the way that whole deal went down and the way he separated from Alphabet uh, at the time, like there's a whole bunch of sketchy details around what he was doing and what he was planning, um, even while he was still employed by Google. Uh, if I recall from from reading back uh, a while ago about the case. Um, so 
there's there's probably like there's 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 smoke and probably definitely some fire there. Uh, I think that this latest development brings it a little a uh, little closer or a little uh, clearer into into focus. Um, that you know, e- even if he's he, the the case is is moving on, U- Uber's kind of at this point like you know what we've had enough. Um, and they they so they let him go. Well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they fired him today as as we record this on uh, on Tuesday evening. Um, you know, but this you know this has come um, you know in the wake of you know during the some of the hearings uh, in the court uh, over the last several weeks. The judge, uh, Judge William Alsop, you know, um, who is no dummy from what the, I hear. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's not. He's he's actually you know compared to most judges, he's actually very technically astute. Um, you know, he, he was actually the judge that oversaw the original, um, Google, uh, Oracle case a few years back, uh, where Oracle sued Ju- uh, Google for the use of Java and Android. Um, and he taught himself to program in Java. He learned, he, in the, in the course of the case, he learned how to program in Java and wrote some code just so he could understand what the terminology was that they were talking about in that case. And, you know, I don't think he's gone to the extent of trying to develop an autonomous vehicle for this one. <laughs> um, but he, he did rule that um, Uber and, and Lewandowski had to turn over any documents they had uh, that, that originated from Google uh, in this case. And uh, Lewandowski, you know, basically has refused to turn over anything. And uh, he has also pleaded the fifth, uh, which it's his absolute right to do, um, you know, because, you know, he is potentially, you know, uh, you know, there's a potential uh, criminal case here. So he, you know, it's his, uh, it's his constitutional right to not incriminate himself. Uh, but, you know, since he has basically refused to cooperate uh, in the investigation uh, and is not even helping out his own employer, apparently uh, Uber decided that, you know, as you said, you know, they've, they've enough is enough and uh, they've cut him loose. And so he's on his own now. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see how this case moves forward because, you know, in the judge's most recent ruling, uh, you know, he um, judge Alsop, um, you know, par- issued a partial injunction against Uber, you know, preventing them from using any technology uh, that they may have gotten from Lewandowski. And um, he also referred the case to the Justice Department for a criminal investigation, um, you know, for mishandling of, of trade secrets. Uh, so, you know, there there is the potential that um, this could be not just a civil suit between Waymo and uh, and Uber, but also potentially a, a criminal case against uh, certainly against Lewandowski and potentially against uh, Uber and other Uber executives. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it and at the heart of it all is the essential technology to making self-driving work is um, there's the, the LiDAR sensor, right, that was developed when he was working with alphabet and that's sort of what what tipped alphabet off was that um the supplier that was making the the sensor for for uh the alphabet project uh notified them like hey there's another one here that is basically your design um that is not you know it's not yours so somebody ripped off your intellectual property uh and that's that's sort of what kicked it off um so if 
if that all becomes like unusable by Uber, like, are they back to square one? Um, potentially, you know, it, it depends, you know, based on what we've seen, excuse me, based on what we've seen of Uber's testing on the road so far, um, I'm not sure that they've actually gotten all that far anyway. You know, their, their vehicles have not actually don't seem to have actually be performing all that well on the road. They, uh, you know, they make lots of mistakes. Um, so they may not be losing much by, uh, uh, by what's happened, but you know, certainly they may have to go back to um, using some off the shelf uh, componentry rather than developing their own in-house, their own LIDAR system in-house. You know, so they, they may have to go to Velodyne or some other manufacturer or, you know, it's it's not impossible that they could follow the lift uh, pattern and basically say, fine, you know, we we won't develop our own autonomous system, maybe just abandon the whole thing and just partner with OEMs to provide their platform uh, to those manufacturers as they're doing with Daimler. You know, Daimler is going to be deploying some of their autonomous vehicles using the Lyft platform uh, to, you know, to handle the logistics. Uh, but, you know, Lyft is, or, or, uh, I mean, Daimler is using the Uber platform, not the Lyft platform. Um, you know, so, you know, Lyft has already decided they're not going to develop autonomous systems themselves. They're partnering with GM and, and more recently with Waymo to use their vehicles. And so uh, Uber could decide to follow that same path. So, I, yeah, I guess I understand to a certain degree that if you're Uber or Lyft or some other uh, company, eventually, like you, you want you want the thing to work without drivers right autonomous cars have that that mm -hmm. promise then and you can deploy faster you can have a larger fleet you can have better coverage you know because the, the key to this is like having the vehicles like in service circulating on demand ready ready when people are ready um why it, it just seems like there's a lot of hubris that goes along with like developing the entire car uh from sort of from scratch uh i'm not sure that I, me as a business person which i'm i'm not but just you know trying to put myself in those shoes why you would want to jump into something as sort of capital intensive and competitive and with such a low margin as like auto manufacturer versus partnering with a company who's really figured this out and saying hey you guys you know why don't you give us a break on the cars and we'll put our stuff in it you know own the own the software and the sensor package and all of that stuff if you must uh, but again, you know, leaning on suppliers and sort of doing it the way automakers do it seems to me to be a much smarter way to, to go about this. Yeah. You know, in, in Uber's case, um, you know, they, they do have a partnership with Volvo to provide, a, you know, to develop a, a vehicle platform, you know, based on their, uh, uh, their, um, scalable product architecture, their, their SPA architecture from the, the 90 series. But, uh, you know, for any company like them, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's Uber or um, Baidu or Newtonomy or, or anyone else that, uh, you know, to develop a vehicle, you know, to develop or, you know, to either purchase vehicles or, um, manu you know, have somebody manufacture the vehicles for you. Like you said, it's very capital intensive, you know, and that's going to cost a hell of a lot of money. And it's not clear that that's necessarily a better business model than just paying drivers. Um, you know, the fundamental problem right now 
is that uh, every, you know, all these companies, you know, Uber, Lyft, everybody else, you know, they have been providing rides at fares that are less than the cost of doing business for them uh, in order to attract customers, attract riders, um, you know, but they have to pay drivers enough to attract the drivers. Uh, so that's why they lose so much money. But they, you know, they don't have any capital expenses right now. If they have to start buying vehicles and maintaining those vehicles, then, you know, it's a it's a very different proposition. It's still not clear that they're actually going to be able to make money off of this. Uh, you know, and it's it's going to be a lot harder for them to go in that direction than for car makers to do the opposite, you know, to develop their own ride hailing platform. And I think what's, you know, I still think that what's ultimately going to happen is that um, Uber and Lyft and, and all these other companies are, are just going to get absorbed into car makers. Well, uh, you know, the, a perfect analogy. Well, if we're talking about perfect analogies, <laughs> I suppose like the, if you look at, if there is right, such a thing, if you just, if you look at manufacturing, over the last 30 or 40 years, right? Uh, in in sort of the developed West, we threw a lot of money at, at you know, high tech and automation and efficiency. And that's, that stuff definitely works. And it, it, it it's very capital intensive. Again, it requires a lot of money. And, uh, you know, we've continually seen uh, th- those jobs move over to, places where the cost of labor is low enough where they can just keep throwing people at it because that's, mm-hmm. that's the sort of the cheap way, the cheap, fast way to get to, uh, you know, mass scale is find some place where the, the human labor is cheap enough. You can train a person. You don't have to put in a bunch of robots and like, Oh, off you go. Um, that that's probably getting a little, little fuzzy in terms of making the analogy, but just thinking like you said, it, it's still, probably about a wash, right? Paying people well, to drive. Well, I mean, you know, the, 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 pro- yeah, the problem here is that you can't just offshore the jobs to someplace where the labor is cheaper because you need to have the labor where the customers are for something like ride hailing. You know, it, you know, if for, you know, if you're making iPhones, if Apple's making iPhones, they can make those iPhones in China or India or somewhere else and bring them back and sell them to consumers in America yeah, that's 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 doable, but you can't you can't move people in the U.S. You know, people that want to get from one place to another with drivers in China or India. Right, but also you can't necessarily make machines do it any cheaper either. I guess was my sort of roundabout. Well, point. yeah, that right. That no, that's true, and that's what I've been saying is it's not necessarily going to be any cheaper for these companies to do it with machines. Um, yeah, you know, and especially if they have to set up their own manufacturing infrastructure. So are we getting all kind of distracted about the fact that like, hey, look at what we can do uh, versus like what what we should do or when it's actually going to be sustainable? Like, is this I, I guess I'm asking, is it kind of like a fad? Like <laughs> and it seems seems really crotchety and old to be asking it. like oh, this television thing. It's never going to last. Well, I mean, that that's certainly a possibility. Um, you know, it, it's it's. It is possible that, you know, this will never really come to fruition. It'll never it'll never be commercially viable. Um, But, 
you know, there's a lot of other things that are driving this as well, that are driving this move towards automation uh, and automated shared mobility, you know, and that has to do with, you know, some of the larger global trends towards urbanization, more people living in cities uh, rather than in rural areas or suburbs, um, you know, and dealing with air quality and traffic congestion and, and safety. And, you know, those are all things that, can also be addressed by these types of vehicles. So there's there's a lot of other factors that are that are driving this movement towards developing autonomous vehicles. Um, but it's it's going to take a while to get all of this to the point where it is commercially viable, um, and you know also you know convincing consumers that this is the the best way to get around. Uh, you know and you know there's there's the distinct possibility. You know, I mean, there's there's been you know a number of of studies that have implied that you know instead of making traffic better, this is actually going to make it worse. You know, because you're going to have by by making mobility accessible to more people, um, you know, you're going to have more cars on the road, you know, driving around, moving people around, and it could actually make traffic worse. I'm I'm not inclined to to believe that. I think that you know if done right. Um, you know, with, uh, you know, if the autonomous systems work correctly, um, it should improve traffic flow. We, we will probably actually have more vehicle miles traveled. Um, and we may even have more total vehicles on the road. Uh, but, you know, with shared mobility services, if you don't have individuals owning those vehicles, uh, you know, you can have vehicles that are right sized for each ride. And so you're using the sp- the volume of space you have on the road uh, more efficiently with these types of vehicles. I'll 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 buy I'll buy that I suppose I don't know I we're we're assuming that it's going to be done properly though, and uh, the cynic in me. You know. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean that's you know what they say about assumptions. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, you know I mean we um, you know and I I think that. Um, you know, some of the more optimistic projections about how quickly this is going to happen, you know, I think are just totally ridiculous. I mean, there's there's a study by a Stanford economist that was published recently, you know, that projected that 95 percent of all vehicle miles traveled by 2030 would be in shared autonomous vehicles. And, you know, the number of vehicles sold would decline by 80 or 90 percent. You know, and I think I think that's just totally absurd. I mean, that's totally not realistic. Are we supposed it, to have like, just, you know, fully autonomous cars like by next year? Right. Like that's. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. Um, no, not going to happen. Uh, it's so there's I guess there's some of that sort of like jetpack factor to it. Um but then we've gotten a little bit off off point, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so let's just completely continue on off point. Um, speaking of new concepts in cars, uh, last week uh, I had this down for one of the topics and we didn't get to it. Um, but the the new modular vehicle that was uh, announced, the OS Vehicles Edit, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, especially since uh, you actually got to... Uh, chat with one of the one of the players involved with that yeah i i didn't actually i didn't get a chance to talk to him but he did present at a conference i was at santa clara a couple of weeks ago uh tin hang you uh, liu um he's the uh, ceo of os vehicle 
And he did a presentation on on what they've done. And actually, you know, what they're proposing is not dramatically different from what a couple of other companies are also uh, doing. They're, you know, they're doing pilot programs with it now. And that's um, local motors uh, who you may have heard of before, um, who've done a couple of very interesting projects with um, trying to do, you know, localized uh, small scale production of vehicles. You know, their first uh, vehicle they came out with was the rally fighter. Uh, and then later they came out, uh, they showed this um, 3D printed uh, composite chassis uh, for an electric vehicle. Um, and their most recent project is something called the Ollie, you know, which like what OS vehicles is proposing is, you know, basically an autonomous shuttle bus, uh, small small uh size you know for like eight to ten passenger shuttle bus um at low speed use and then there's also um uh, a french company called navia uh that is also doing uh something along very similar lines and they actually have a small fleet of their vehicles that are operating in nice uh france moving people around you know low speed shuttle vehicles and you know all of these you know i think are ultimately part of the um, you know kind of the direction that we need to go with mobility services you know you know we talk about you know shared autonomous mobility services um, you know there, there's going to be uh, it's not going to be just like what you have today with uh, Lyft and Uber you know where you just have single vehicles that you ride around in there's going to be a, a, a range of different types of vehicles for different applications you know in some areas you're going to use you know some of these smaller shuttle vehicles, uh, you know, to move, you know, 10, 12 people at a time. Um, you'll have, you know, smaller um, one or two pe two person uh, pod type vehicles. Uh, you're going to have, you know, some mass transit with, you know, trains or, or larger buses. So, you know, it's all part of this broad spectrum of different types of, of vehicles that can be used for all these different applications. So it's almost like... Uh we're changing the the mix of platforms, but you know, it's not really, it, it's, it's a shift for, for everything. Cause we already have a mix of platforms. So we're kind of, we're, we're mirroring that in, in some way, like, you know, just trying to put the right vehicle in the right place for the, the people versus having the people go to the place for the vehicle. It's, it's almost exactly standing it on its head. Um, yeah. In the, are I I'm rally fight the the um local motors uh I think their focus is a little bit more about uh well with the rally fighter it was like you said sort of like on demand manufacturing it was it was sort of very customized um the thing that I took away from the OS vehicle announcement was that they're prominently touting modularity as like is this uh great innovation and it's already a big deal in the design and construction of automobiles. And it has been for a long time. Um, so I was a little confused about why, like, why does this seem like a new idea? Modularity is, is why every Fox body Ford uh, has the pretty much the exact same dashboard from like the Mustang to the yeah. LTD. Uh, and they used uh, it, you know, it's why the, the, the Camry Sienna and Highlander uh, share a platform. Um, so the, I watched the video that they used to introduce the future of the automotive industry. And I saw a lot of, uh, you know, n not bad ideas. They're good ideas. They're, they're ideas that currently exist. They're, they're 
old ideas, uh, you know, uh, and, and even like sort of echoes of the 60s, like mirror image doors that you can swap left and right. Um, you know, look at what Brooke Stevens was doing with Studebaker back in the 60s, the early 60s. Um, so. Does. Well, I think I think what OS vehicle is proposing, you know, you're right. You know, we've had modularity in terms of vehicle manufacturing for for decades, um, you know, and, you know, we got shared component sets in there um, and, you know, putting them together in different ways. But, you know, what you can't do is once you've built that into a Mustang or an LTD, um, you know, or any of the other Fox body variants, you know, or, you know, it, once you've built a Camry, you can't really turn it into a Highlander. Um, you know, what what these guys are proposing, you know, is more uh, plug and play. You know, think of it like large scale Lego, um, you know, and then, you know, providing a vehicle platform that you can add your own um, autonomous driving system to, you know, so you can, you know, basically, you know, they've got this kind of trying to do a white label approach um, to, you know, a plug and play. Uh, you know, large scale, you know, kind of a transformers kind of thing. And, you know, you could even recon reconfigure vehicles, you know, as needed, you know, so you could take off the, the back end of a passenger vehicle and, and turn it into a cargo van, uh, things like that. So I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure that this is necessarily a viable approach. It's an interesting idea. Um, it just it, it, it's an inter it's a fascinating idea. It's, it's also not um, new. Um, I there was a know, mechanics illustrated I, somewhere I have from my grandfather that has uh, oh, a yeah. car with like two bodies, you know, and like you, you put it into the body, you winch up the speedster body, and you winch down the the wagon body. So like it's not a not a new idea. Well, you know, I mean, and in uh, what late eighties uh, was it the Nissan Pulsar? Yeah, remember that the Pulsar. one. You know, and it. Um, you know, the, the base version, you know, had like this sort of notched hatchback, you know, con concave notched hatchback, and you could take that off and put on wagon, uh, like a, a little yeah. wagon, uh, back, you know, so, you know, it's, it's been done. Um, you know, I think, you know, what these guys want to do is take it to, um, you know, another level. Uh, but the thing is, you know, I think these types of vehicles are going to be limited in their application. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that the, the, you know, local motors and Navia have acknowledged is that these, you know, are definitely low speed vehicles designed for use in constrained environments where they don't have to interact with so much with, with other vehicles. Um, and, you know, so the safety safety is not so much of a problem. Uh, you know, in terms of meeting safety requirements, you know, crash safety requirements, because mm -hmm. they're never going to go that fast. Um, you know, and for something like this, as long as it's operating in a similar kind of constrained environment, then, um, you know, you might be able to do something like this. Uh, but it's I don't I, I think you're going to have a very hard time if you wanted to make this more of a general purpose vehicle where it still has to interoperate with traditional vehicles, you know, at higher speeds and you know meeting the safety standards that those vehicles meet. Well, you know what, if they're going to go into cities and be sort of a, you know, a replacement for um, very high investment public transport in some way, and we've already, you know, sort of broken the seal on trying to legislate vehicles out of cities around the world and in several different places. Um, you know, if, if both of those trends continue, maybe they will cross and they will be a perfect solution. I, 
you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a replacement for um, public transit as we know it today, but more of a supplement to it, you know, and taking some of, you know, what we do with public transit, you know, some of the lower density yep. routes and using these types of vehicles, um, you know, and then for the high density routes, you have larger buses and trains. You know, I mean, what local motors has been proposing, for example, here in Detroit, uh, they just launched a new, um, light rail system, uh, down Woodward Avenue in, in Detroit. And, you know, it's, it's a, it has the potential to be a very good way to get, you know, from, you know, the Northern part of Woodward Avenue into the downtown core, uh, where parking is at a premium. Uh, you know, it's very hard to find parking off a lot of the times in the downtown core of Detroit. Uh, and, you know, what local motors would like to do is have a fleet of these vehicles that operate between some of the lots, you know, even at the, the northern end of this uh, light rail system, you know, the parking is not right there, you know, at the train stations. You know, it might be a few blocks away. Uh, and, you know, especially in the wintertime or when the weather's bad having a fleet of these vehicles that can shuttle people from the parking lots over to the, the train, you know, get on the train and then get dropped off right at your office downtown, you know, a, a multimodal system like that could be very interesting. That, that something like that could work very yeah, well. I mean, honestly, my experience with going to this uh, conference the other day, I would have loved to have this as a solution. I had a, I had a freaking Tundra in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is completely under construction now. And it was raining and it was the day of Harvard graduation. Um, oh. So I would have just loved to just get out of the, the truck and leave. It took me an hour to get to Cambridge from my house, which is pretty, pretty normal. It took me another hour of circling the same like eight block area before I could find a garage like, because the truck is tall. So there were three garages I tried. Two of them were full. One of them it wouldn't fit in because it was too tall. And the one that I managed to put it in, it took me 20 minutes to do, you know, a zillion point turn just to nudge it into a parking space without hitting anything else. So I'm, I'm, you know, as, as much as we let our skepticism show, I'm, I'm enthusiastic that some of this stuff is going to come to fruition and it's going to actually uh, improve the situation for, you know, suckers. Like I would have just loved to like park and ride. I didn't want to take the train though. So Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when I was, you know, working out outside of the house, I would have loved to have an option like this, you know, to, instead of driving, you know, taking that mindless commute every day, you know, wasting, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, you know, just, you know, commuting down the highway or stuck in traffic. It'd be great to have an option like right. this. That's why we drive 100 and something miles an hour sometimes, because there's just sometimes you've got to reengage your mind. I will yep. use that as a uh, excuse. Um all right. So let's move. Why don't we yeah. dive into some listener questions? So we did have some questions. Um, what what did you get? We got a few on Twitter. I didn't know if there were any on Facebook or anything that you uh, came across. All right. Well, wh why don't we why don't we start off with one that came on Facebook um, from uh, Eric? Um, a real question. Do you guys see a market for converting existing cars into an electric drivetrain um, on a large scale? No. <laughs> Basically, you know, it's to. You know, I mean, there, you, there's lots of people that convert, you know, older vehicles into uh, EVs, you know, rip out the the powertrain and put in an electric motor and some batteries. But, um, you know, you can do that on a small scale, do some one offs. 
But doing it on a large scale just is not practical because these vehicles were not designed uh, to package, you know, the batteries into. Um, and, you know, they're not they're not optimized for this kind of application. Um, and you're never going to be able to get particularly good range out of these types of conversions. So overall, you know, no, doing these conversions is, is not practical. It's better to design a vehicle from the ground up to be an EV. I can see a niche market for a hipster, like homemade sort of like. Oh, yeah. Hand, that's yeah, that's what I'm saying. EV craze. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I mean, there's lots of people to do. I mean, you know, you look around, you know, if you just Google or look on YouTube, you'll find, you know, lots of people convert old Beatles right. and and even 911s uh, to, you know, to electric right. power trains. Um, the, the guys yeah. who do it really nicely is what is electric bug or something, electric motors or whatever with a Z in front of electric. Um, I and. You know, years ago, you know, when I was still writing for Autoblog Green, you know, probably in about 2008 or nine. I was out working in the yard one day and some guy pulled into my driveway um, with an old Saturn coupe and said, you know, he, he had, he had recognized, you know, he had noticed the fact that I had lots of different cars in my driveway all the time. Cause he drove by regularly and, you know, asked if I was an auto writer and started to explain that, uh, you know, that he had converted his Saturn to electric, you know, and basically this thing was, he had, you know, 12 volt lead acid batteries Jeez. packed into this thing everywhere he could. Uh, you know, it's funny. You know, I actually, you know, I took, he let me take it for a little drive. Uh, you know, and it, it only, but you know, the thing is it only had about 30, 35 miles of range. Right. Uh, you know, which, you know, if for an individual, you know, if you want to, you know, have, have something, you know, if, if, if you want to have a project and do something like that, go for it. I have nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, and you know, the more, the, the more, the merrier, I mean, just don't get know, in an it's, accident because that's just a, I mean, that's a nightmare. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you know, these days you probably want to avoid using lead acid batteries if you can, you know, if you can get some, some lithium ion batteries, that's probably a better option for you. Um, and you know, it's probably not the, the safest thing to do, but you know, still, if you, you know, if you're so inclined, go for it. Uh, I'm just saying it's, it's not, it's not necessary. It's not going to be something you're going to see on a mass scale. You're not, you know, we're not going to take the 270 million cars we have on the road, you know, that are registered in the U S right now and convert all those over to electric. It's, it's just not going to happen. No, we'd be better off smelting them into new cars. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, any other questions from the, the Facebook uh, that was it okay. from Facebook that I uh, saw. We have we we have a quick one that we can answer. Uh, why do all beige Toyota Camrys have damage to the rear bumper? No, no idea. Uh, because, well, no, it's it's obvious. I mean, you know, beige Camrys are invisible. That's true. It's it's the ultimate camouflage. So you know they have they have damaged rear bumpers because people <laughs> people don't even see them. They just drive right into them, and it's only when they feel the impact that they stop. Um, so that, that's why they all have broken bumps. And I do, I have noticed the Camry dent, which it was sort of coined by Jalopnik. Um, I think also like that's such a prevalent car. You notice it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, somebody was trying to get me to buy a 140, a Volvo 142, which that, nope, not going to happen. Oh, oh, come on. You know, you uh, want it. I did want a 142 for a long time. I wanted a 142 S. Um, but no, not anymore. Well, well, I'll, I'll I'll put the link to uh, this Craigslist ad uh, in in the uh, uh, in the show notes, and you know if you can beat Alex Kirstein to it, I mean, more power that, to that you. Cars, that's not that's not the one forty two I would buy anyway. So that's a little too uh, yeah. rough. 
Yeah, this this one this one's you know set you know configured as a rally yeah. car, uh, you know stripped out. Um, we also had another uh, question uh, from uh, Bicio Mocha um, on Twitter. He asked uh, thoughts on used uh, Fiat 500e for fi- for six thousand dollars in California. Do you think it would be a decent car to own as a second city? I think it would be a great car to if own you, as a second city. Yeah. A- absolutely. Um, you know the 500e is actually probably the best 500 to get if you're going to get a fiat 500 um i I, the 500e is actually a lot of fun to drive it's really it's surprisingly powerful quick um handles handles really well um and you know if you can get one for six grand um yeah that's a that's a great option you know the the range you know i mean we're not talking chevy bolt or tesla range here uh you know maybe 70 80 miles tops um but you know if you're looking for something to drive around town in and have a good time doing it and it'll be really easy to park because it's so small that's a fantastic option yeah and it's a 500 the 500 is fun anyway so yeah and well and you know the 500e especially because it's so torquey um you know it's just a hoot to drive yeah I think we answered all his other questions. Uh, he had some questions about um, how the Tundra has aged, which I think we covered as in terribly. Um, and yes. I, <laughs> I, uh, did, I suggested the Silverado and the um, Sierra as my my favorite pickups. Although I honestly, because he's saying he has a lot of he needs he needs a pickup and he needs the four door and the bed and stuff. Um, Man, well, I mean, you know, every everybody offers that yeah, these days. Uh, if you're not doing a lot of hauling and stuff, check out the Ridgeline. I know it seems like it's. Oh, yeah, actually, that's true. Yeah, if you you know if you don't need ten thousand pounds of you know or twelve thousand pounds of towing capacity, the Ridgeline is actually a fantastic the, the option. The Ridgeline for for what I would use a truck for, and I think what a lot of people use a truck for, like that's that's just a really great truck. If it's not rugged enough for you, that's that's fair. Uh, but if it is like that's it's a fantastic truck um and you know it's the only truck on the market with a lockable trunk in the back right. of the bed uh where you can put all of your finest assorted tchotchkes yeah i mean you can you can throw tools in there um you know you can put all kinds of stuff in there you know beach gear whatever um and uh or you know you can also use it for tailgate parties you know just fill it with ice right. um, drain there's a, a drain yeah. plug in the bug yeah just fill it with ice and and uh assorted beverages and uh it's great tailgate i just too. forget stuff in there um all the time I'd be like oh yeah i don't remember where. and then so i'd spend like a half hour looking for my socket set that i left in the lockable compartment three weeks ago because that's that's just me yeah. um Another one that came in on Twitter, uh, Civic SI. Have we driven it yet? I have not. Uh, I think that's just sort of getting out. I, there. Yeah, just getting out there. I've got one scheduled uh, for early July, uh, so I will let you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's coming uh, about six weeks time. I ha- I will say I've driven the Civic Sport and you you your wife owns a Civic. Um, the, yeah. the new Civic is good. I've driven the Sport and. Yeah, I've driven the Sport as well. And, you know, we own a, an EX, you know, which, you know, I mean, the only difference between that and the Sport is uh, six horsepower, uh, which is not really particularly noticeable. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the Civic is a fantastic car. Um, so if you're looking for a compact, uh, you know, especially a hatchback, you know, um, I would definitely look at either the Civic um, or the Mazda 3. The Mazda 3 is also a fantastic choice. Those are those are my two favorites in this segment the segment right now. Mazda 3 probably doesn't. I mean, it's not going to look like it's going to stab you with a, you know, a, a 
switchblade in its <laughs> boot, which kind of the Civic SI is a little, it's a little overdone. And, but other than that, it's probably entertaining. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's a matter yeah. of taste. Um, you know, uh, you know, my wife preferred the, uh, the Civic. Um, you know, I, I generally like the Civic, you know, I think, you know, personally I would probably opt for the design of the Mazda. Uh, but you know, they're, they're both great cars to drive. They both, they're a lot of fun. They handle really well. Um, they're, they're quick enough, uh, very fuel efficient and, you know, plenty of room. Okay. Uh, is that uh, it or do we have more? Um, just looking through the Twitter here and see if we got anything else. I think we've covered pretty much. I everything. just realized we had that whole segment before the call dropped, which will not be in the podcast, but it happened. Uh, and now we're up to like an hour. So, um, probably. Yeah. yeah well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that one another day. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, as soon as we figure out what that segment was about. Yeah, no, that, that's fine. Uh, so anyway, we will catch up with everyone next time. This was episode 25, uh, yep. of wheel bearings. And, you know, I did actually look today on iTunes and stuff and I did see a bunch of, uh, reviews and stuff so thank you very much for that uh you know tell your friends we do appreciate those reviews yeah tell tell everybody you know anybody that's remotely interested in cars or you know the future of cars you know tell them to uh to tune in check it out and uh subscribe so that you don't miss an episode um and uh you know put, put it in your favorite uh pod, podcast app uh whether it's pocket casts or apple podcasts or overcast or whatever you prefer uh and i have nothing else to add so i'm gonna shut up now for the first time in a couple hours <laughs> okay and uh if you got any any other comments or feedback you know feel free to email us uh hit us up on twitter at wheelbearingscast uh or on facebook uh look for the wheelbearing media page um what else uh, i think that's about it so we'll see you next All time right, good night you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.